Our Father, we thank you for the faith that you have granted to each one of us. And Father, as we consider the scripture from Genesis through Revelation, the constant story that we read is one of your faithfulness. And Father, I pray that as we study the Word of God this morning, our faith will be strengthened, that our understanding of who you are will be deepened. Father, give us a real vision of your majesty, of your character, that we might more than ever before understand what it means to serve the living God. Lord, I pray that you will anoint us here this morning with the Spirit of God. And throughout this uh, building today, as the word is preached and lessons are taught, we ask that hearts will be touched, changed, strengthened. Whatever is the need of each individual, we ask you to meet that need this morning. We just invite you to be present here, corporately and individually, as we focus on the word in Jesus' name. Amen. If you turn to Joshua chapter 6, I'd like to begin at verse 15. Joshua chapter 6, verse 15. Then it came about on the seventh day that they rose early at the dawning of the day and marched around the city in the same manner seven times. Only on that day they marched around the city seven times. And it came about on the, at the seventh time, when the priests blew the trumpets, Joshua said to the people, Shout, for the Lord has given you the city, and the city shall be under the ban, and it and all that it is in it belongs to the Lord. Only Rahab the harlot and all who are with her in the house shall live, because she hid the messengers whom we sent. But as for you, only keep yourselves from the things under the ban, lest you covet them and take some of the things under the ban so that you may, would make the camp of Israel accursed and bring trouble on it. But all the silver and gold and articles of bronze and iron are holy to the Lord. They shall go into the treasury of the Lord. So the people shouted and the priests blew the trumpets and it came about when the people heard the sound of the trumpet that the people shouted with a great shout and the wall fell down flat so that the people went up into the city, every man straight ahead, and they took the city. And they utterly destroyed everything in the city, both man and woman, young and old, ox and sheep and donkey, with the edge of the sword. Well, on the last day of the siege of Jericho, they got up early. They began at dawn to march around the city. And you can imagine that here is the seventh day. For six days, they walked around the city. Here we are on the seventh day. Can you imagine the heightened excitement? Even getting up at dawn, you, you can be excited. Maybe not as much as a little later in the day, but I, I think there was an air of excitement. And I think it was therefore difficult for them to maintain silence, which of course they had been ordered to do. And, and the people of Jericho were a bit surprised to see the Israelites so early in the morning. But I don't think most of them watched very long. They had seen this before, in fact, for six days in a row. They had watched this, this procession, this strange procession, with armed men leading the way, and, and then the priests carrying the Ark of the Covenant and blowing on the shofars, and then another contingent of armed men following as they marched around the city and went back to camp, and marched around the city and went back to camp. They'd seen this six days in a row. 
And so I think as they watched Israel, they were a little bit surprised why they are quite so early. You know, they're earlier than normal. What's, what's different about this? Well, we'll watch and see. But I think most of them expected that as soon as Israel completed the circuit, they would march back to camp as they had already done for six days in a row. However, when the Sentinels reported that the Israelites were not headed back for camp, but were beginning a second circuit of the wall of Jericho, I think the Canaanites became alert at that moment to the possibility of an attack. Maybe this is the day they're actually going to stop playing this game and they're going to really attack the walls of the city. But third time, fourth time, fifth time, I think they were getting a little bit bored watching the people march around. And I think at this point they were beginning to think more seriously that Israel was led by a madman that Joshua was totally out of touch with reality. That's the only thing he could assume. I mean, if you're in their shoes, sandals, what would you think, you know, as, as you watched them do this day after day and had no concept of what this was all about? Conversely, there was one house on the wall whose inhabitants were watching with a different attitude. And this, of course, was the house of Rahab. And I think as she looked out of her window over the top of the wall and watched them go by and watched them go by and watched them go by again, I think wonder was rising within her. I think that in her heart, she kept hoping, I, I hope those spies told Joshua and that they understood uh, what I have done and that they have guaranteed their promise or that their promise will be carried into effect. However, I think as the army passed again, and as the army passed again, she was beginning to wonder in her own heart, did she really understand what was happening? Would Yahweh actually give Israel this city? I mean, we have to be realistic here. I mean, looking at our own lives, uh, you know, if things continue to go in the direction they've been going, and we've been praying for like crazy that God will change it, and it continues to go in the direction opposite of what we're praying, sometimes doubt can creep in, can it not? And we can begin to wonder, does, is God really going to do anything about this? And so certainly for this woman who was very, very uh, young in her faith, very uninstructed in her faith, I, I think she was beginning to wonder if she was mistaken. But I think at the same time, she kept nervously checking the red cord, tugging on it, making sure that red cord was nicely attached there and hanging visibly out the window and making sure, looking out down towards the ground, can they see that red cord as they're looking up? You know, I mean, there still is the faith, basic rudimentary faith. And then, of course, she had to keep reassuring her family. She had gotten them all into the house, her brothers, her parents, who knows how many other family members were in this house. Now, we're not talking about you know, a four-bedroom, three-bathroom, you know, nice big layout here. Uh, these homes were very small. So I think that was pretty crowded in there. And they were probably getting a little nervous about this whole thing and wondering, what, does this woman know what she's talking about? After all, she is the one who had the faith. Their faith is in trusting her word, which does indicate some measure of faith given her profession. And so she had to keep reassuring them that her request still stood and that they needed to hang in there as long as possible. It was essential to their survival. That's how essential it was. Well, I think the sentinels on the wall, the sentinels on the wall, and by this time I think basically the whole army was on the wall because 
this was a day, everything was different from the previous six days. And so I think the army was on the wall and they were prepared to resist and attack. Maybe Israel was hoping to make the, the Canaanites dizzy by watching them by, go by and then was going to attack, you know, hard to tell, they, they wouldn't know. So I think the sentinels were becoming either very bored or very nervous about this whole thing. And then Israel began the seventh circuit of the city. Can you imagine how eerie it must have been? Because this procession was carried out in absolute silence, except for the blowing of the ram's horn. The bleep, bleep, you know, type thing all along. Everything else was quiet. The people weren't talking. The people were probably looking straight ahead, just marching as soldiers around the city wall. And it didn't matter what the Canaanites were shouting from the city wall, they got no response from Israel. Now remember, although they had to be out of bowshot, they weren't out of earshot. And Israel could hear what was being said. Now whether Israel understood the language that was being spoken from the top of the wall, we don't know. But they could probably pretty well know that whatever was being said wasn't kind. Nothing but the blowing of the shofars and the marching of the soldiers, beginning now the seventh circuit of the walls. It was probably late in the morning by this time. We can't know exactly sure, for sure because we don't know the size of the contingent that was marching around the city, therefore how long it took com for uh, a complete circuit to be made. But it was probably towards late morning when the seventh circuit of the city was completed. And suddenly, completely out of character with the 13 times now that Israel has walked around the wall, as soon as the seventh circuit was completed, the thousands of men who had been marching probably several abreast in this path out around the city walls stopped, faced the walls, and stood in concentric rings around the city. Rows of the men facing the city in absolute silence. The shofars fell silent, everything was silent. What would you think if you were a sentinel on the wall? They're not marching, nothing is happening, it's dead silent out there. The trumpets that have been irritating you for all morning long now are no longer blowing. I think the total silence sent chills up and down their spines, thinking about it. At the right moment, Joshua gave the order and the blasts on the shofar were given. And the people shouted, piercing the terrible silence. How long was it silent before the shofars blew and the people shouted? Probably several minutes. People shouted in unison, and the walls collapsed like a house of cards. I've even read somewhere of someone who thought that maybe it was the, it was the, uh, the timber of the voices of everybody shouting at once that sent, you know, it's kind of like you've, you've seen the advertisement where some great metropolitan singer goes like this and shatters a glass, you know, well, maybe it shattered the walls. Well, I don't quite think so. These are stone walls. Well, verses 17 to 19 uh, are interesting verses in the midst of this passage because they record instructions given by Joshua to the people about the attack. Now, where, where they are placed, you look at this, and it tells us, as we read in verse 15, that they, they walked around seven times, and the seventh time then the, they blew the trumpets and, the, and Joshua said, shout, and then he goes into a dissertation. You know, and, and he tells them about the city being under the ban and everything belongs to the Lord. And I mean, there are three, four verses there. I believe 
that, of course, these instructions were given before Israel ever left camp that morning. These are the instructions that I'm giving to you here concerning the city. And then I think at the last minute, probably just before the attack was given, as he gave the signal for the shout to be given, that the word was passed along the lines, remember the ban. Maybe that was the shout. Who, who knows? It doesn't say what the shout was. Remember the ban. Could have been the shout that was given. But the reminder here is given to them just before the attack is made. Jericho was placed under the Lord's ban. The word ban is the Hebrew haram, which is a word that refers to the compulsory dedication of something to destruction because it is accursed before the Lord. The whole city of Jericho was accursed before the Lord. In fact, the whole land of Canaan was accursed before the Lord because he had given them 400 years to repent, and they would not. And therefore, the whole land, and beginning with the city of Jericho, was under a curse. Now, in case of the specific things within the city, only Jericho would be under that portion of the ban. Why? Why did God say, nothing in that city can be picked up by any of you? It all belongs to the Lord. Everything inside this city belongs to the Lord, down to the smallest little coin or the smallest little piece of cloth, whatever. It all belongs to the Lord. No souvenir hunting, no looting. Why? Well, I think there are several reasons. First of all, I think the reason is we're talking about the first fruits. This is the first fruits of the land. God had said to Israel that when you're in the land and your crops come forth, the first fruit belongs to me. The very first of the ripening grains, the first of the figs, the first of the olives, the first of the grapes, they all belong to the Lord. This is the first fruit of the conquest of the land. It is the first city they will capture. And therefore, it is given to the Lord in its entirety. Now, as you go back and study the law of the first fruits, the Israelites couldn't say, couldn't pick the first fruits, dedicate it to the Lord, and then eat them themselves. Uh, it belonged to the Lord. And so the city belonged to the Lord. I think a second reason was that God wanted the people to keep their eyes on their task. It was a, it was a heinous task. It was an awful task. They had to slaughter the entire living beings, all of the living beings within that city. And that was a horrible thing. And they had to keep their eyes on the task, their minds on what they were there to do. They couldn't be looking for loot. You know, that can be a, that can be a kind of a contest after a while. You know, who's going to get the most loot? And, of course, if you were a looter, you, go to, you want to be sure you break into the wealthier homes, not some impoverished home, you know, to try to get the best loot. So I think that was a reason. Thirdly, I, I think it's clear from the passage that this wealth that was to be taken from the city in terms of the metals was to be dedicated to the underwriting of the tabernacle. The gold, the silver, the bronze, and the iron were all dedicated to the tabernacle. It would serve to underwrite the tabernacle, to, to finance it in the years ahead. Now, the metals could be purified. The metals could go through a religious uh, dedication and purification and thus could be committed to tabernacle uh, service, but other items and, of course, peoples and animals would not be and would be destroyed. And then, fourthly, 
and I think this is a very, very important one also, that this whole concept of giving the whole city to God and destroying everything except for the metals would serve as a visual aid concerning the vileness of Canaanite culture and religion. Everything was to be destroyed except that which could be ceremonially purified. And that would be dedicated to the Lord's service. It was a lesson to Israel that they were to be single-minded in their worship of Yahweh. This is really, to me, a very important lesson for us who live in the United States. Because we live in a society that is pluralistic in every way. A society that shames you if you are single-minded. You're supposed to be uh, broad-minded and you're supposed to accept everything and, and everyone, no matter what. And you can't claim that one group or one philosophy or one religion is better than another. At least you shouldn't if you want to be politically correct. Well, that is not the teaching of Scripture. The teaching of Scripture is that we are not to be pluralistic or syncretistic. You know, in the, if you study the history of Christianity, one of the things that, that becomes the most um, distressing is to notice how often the church was syncretized. That is where the, the faith had something added to it, you know, from outside. You know, starts out with Gnosticism and, it, and the uh, Judaistic Judaizers, and then it goes on to the uh, Manichaeans and, and all the other different groups that would develop down through time. You, you want to move from the straight and the narrow. You want to broaden the path is really what it's all about. Broadening the path. The scripture says narrow is the way of salvation. But, but we want to, I hope not we, but humans want to broaden that path. To do so, of course, is to fly directly contrary to the teaching of scripture. And it really comes down to the final analysis of who do we believe? Do we believe what God has said in his word or do we trust in human thinking? You know, Paul, Paul talks a lot about that because Paul was a highly educated, highly trained person who had uh, come to faith in Christ. And so he has a lot to say about vain philosophy and science so-called. And of course, we live in a world where philosophy and science is exalted. And, and even within the Christian church, we have people who, who say, well, you know, I don't really want to be a biblical literalist. Meaning what I, what I'm, what I want to do is, of course, I want to hang on to the basic spiritual teachings of Scripture, but, but I don't want to uh, at, in any way deny the teachings of, sci of science and philosophy and other things. Well, in, in my opinion, I, I don't think the teachings of science, which are true science teaching the truth, ever conflict with Scripture. Because the author of the, of the natural world and of history is the same God as the author of the Bible. He is one. And, and there is no conflict there. We have all this talk today about the conflict between science and religion. Science and religion. Well, any conflict exists because either the people who are following the religious aspect are screwed up or the people following the science aspect are screwed up. But you get your science right and you get your religion right and, and they're tandem. They're the same. As I, I've forgotten who it was, but it was... <laughs> It was a famous scientist, but I've forgotten his name, how famous he was. Uh, said that when we get to the top of the mountain, we may discover the theologians are already there. Does anybody remember who said that? Robert Jastrow. Thank you. <laughs> you know, and I think that's true. To be tolerant of other gods for Israel was anathema. 
Now you and I in our society can't go around and publicly cursing other people because they follow other religions. And we have no right from God to go around beating up on people or doing anything at all. We are to respect human beings and respect their right to choose. But at the same time, we must stand on the truth of what we believe. And we may say, you may think Buddhism is correct, but I know it to be wrong. I will respect you as an individual, and I will treat you as, you know, properly as such, but you are wrong, and I have a right to tell you that, and you can tell me whatever you want. But, you know, I think that's what we have to do in our society. We can't just assume that everybody around us, because they are convinced of whatever they believe, that it's okay. It's okay. Because it isn't okay. Anything associated with false worship was put under the ban. And nothing was to be allowed into common use because it had spiritual associations. It had been spiritually profane. These were a profane people. And their religion shot completely through their society. Everything they did was religiously connected, the Canaanites. And so nothing except the metals which could be ceremonially purified were to be preserved. I think these instructions had been given by Joshua to the people long before the actual moment where it appears that, you know, it almost appears like he says, blow the trumpets and shout and gives them a little sermon here. I don't, I don't think that all kind of fits in there. I, I think he had already given them the message that could be heard on all sides of the city when they were blown. The people shouted and the walls fell in place. They fell in place. That is the, the, the literal teaching of the, the Hebrew here. The walls collapsed in, in situ, on site, in spot. They didn't go, ooh, you know, or ooh. They just crumbled straight down, just collapsed in a heap, in a pile of rubble. And so you understand, all those Canaanite soldiers are on the walls. They're standing on the walls. And suddenly the walls collapse and all the stones, like a, like, you know, just like a, you ever build all those little things with, when you were a kid with all those little blocks? <laughs> it crunch. I think the Canaanite army was largely wiped out in the collapse of the walls. They were just crushed by the falling wall. I think here there's a two-fold meaning for the blowing of the shofars. First of all, I think the blowing of the shofars announced the presence of Yahweh. Canaanites, Yahweh is here. The God of the universe is here. The God of the universe is taking this city. The very first mention of shofar in scripture goes back to Exodus chapter 19. And let me just read a passage from Exodus 19. We studied this when we went through the life of Moses. And this, of course, is a time of the visitation at Mount Sinai. Exodus 19, verse 16, it says, So it came about on the third day, when it was morning, that there was thunder and lightning flashes and a thick cloud upon the mountain and a very loud shofar sound, so that all the people who were in the camp trembled. And Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet God, and they stood at the foot of the mountain. Now Mount Sinai was all in smoke, because the Lord descended upon it in fire, and its smoke ascended like the smoke of a furnace, and the whole mountain quaked violently. And the sound of the shofar grew louder and louder. And Moses spoke, and God answered him with thunder. This first record of the shofar in Scripture, this is God's shofar. 
There's no priest blowing this. This is God's angels blowing the shofar. And it gets louder and louder. Well, you know, if you, if you know anything about this shofar, it's, it's, a, it's a ram's horn. And you blow in it, and of course you can press with your lungs a little louder, a little softer, but you, you can't make a big difference in, in the total sound. But the implication here is it got louder and louder and louder, which of course God can do. What was the purpose of the ram's horn there? It was announcing, God is here, folks. God is here. And I think the blowing of the shofar at the time of the collapse of the walls of Jericho made that same announcement. God is here. This is his land. He's giving it to the Israelites. And you people are going to be destroyed because you've stood in opposition to the God of the universe and chosen to worship gods made by men. Secondly, I think that the sound of the shofar was proclaiming judgment. There are many passages in, in the prophets, but let me just turn to Joel chapter 2. Let me read the first three verses here. Blow a shofar in Zion and sound an alarm in my holy mountain and let all the inhabitants of the land treble for the day of the Lord is coming. Surely it is near. A day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and thick darkness. As the dawn is spread over the mountains, so there is, great, is a great and mighty people. There has never been anything like it, nor will there be again after it to the years of many generations. A fire consumes before them, and behind them a flame burns. The land is like the Garden of Eden before them, but a desolate wilderness behind them, and nothing at all escapes them. You'll find in Jeremiah and several of the prophets the shofar is used to announce, to proclaim judgment. Blow the trumpet in Zion, it says here, because the day of the Lord is coming. Well, the day of the Lord came for the Canaanites at Jericho. And it was the beginning of the day of the Lord for the whole land of Canaan. As Israel came as, as God's instrument of judgment upon that wicked land. And God destroyed the land. Destroyed the Canaanites, I should say, in the land. So it was a proclamation of the presence of Yahweh and a proclamation of judgment. The blowing of the shofar, I don't think, was just something to do. It had very deep meaning. Well, the Israelite soldiers, as I'm sure that even though they had been told the walls would collapse, I, I still think they stood there dumbfounded. Whoa, you know, as this whole thing just collapsed in front of them. I mean, you've all, I, you've all seen it, haven't you? Where they have these, these dynamiters who know how to dynamite a building so it just drops straight down and doesn't fall into every other building around about. I think it's what happened. Just whoosh, big cloud of dust. I have to remember the dust. They probably, <coughs> you know, waited till the dust cleared a little bit. And then they charged right over the rubble, straight into the city. I think there was little resistance. Most of the army had been destroyed on the wall in the collapse of the wall. And the Israelites became an instrument of divine judgment. There's a very, very important truth here. And that is, they had been given a writ by God. This is what they were to do. But there have been in history others who have assumed the writ and gone on to destroy, such as the Crusaders, who between 1095 and 1292 brought judgment, their own brand of it, upon the people in the Near East who didn't worship as they did. And the Crusaders didn't go forth with the writ of God. They went forth in their own strength. 
and not even really believing the teaching of the one in whose name they went. They put a cross on the front of them saying we're going forth and then, you know, the word crusade comes from the word cross to carry the cross into war. It's, it's like a jihad. It's a Christian jihad, if you will. And <clears throat> they're going forth and cutting people in half because they don't believe as they believe, which you don't find taught in Scripture, especially in the New Testament. And you don't find it really taught in the Old Testament either. Israel was told to do this at this time, at this moment. Israel was not given carte blanche to go around anywhere they wanted to, killing everybody just because they didn't believe what they believed. No. This was a specific task given by God at this specific moment. Unfortunately, in the Middle Ages, the, the knight in shining armor, the knight in shining armor was looked upon as, as a, a reincarnation, if you will, of Joshua. It's amazing what they did with Joshua. They put Joshua on a big horse and put armor on him in their vision. Armor didn't ha um, uh, Joshua didn't have a horse. He didn't have any armor either. He had the great armor, the armor of the Lord. But he, that was the excuse to go out and do what they did. And they even launched crusades against other Christians, or I should say other people called themselves Christians, in Europe. You don't believe what we believe. Whack. You know, it's very important. I think to distinguish between the writ of God, the proclamation of God, and the teaching of men and the beliefs of men, and ideas of men. God could have destroyed Jericho just as he destroyed Sodom. Could have rained fire and brimstone and wiped out the city and Israel wouldn't even have to attack the city. They wouldn't even have to walk around it 13 times. He could have just whoosh, torched the whole place. The ultimate result would be the same because that's what happened to Jericho. Jericho, the walls fell down, and Israel burned the rest of the city and killed everything, living, every living thing in it. It would have been the same. been a lot quicker if God had done it, but he didn't do that. Why did he not do that? Because he chose that his people, Israel, would understand the seriousness of this kind of heinous religion and of the consequences of wickedness that they would understand that divine judgment falls on all evil men and women, ultimately. And they had to taste it firsthand with blood on their own swords. I mean, you and I recoil from the very idea, I think, I would trust, we would, of going into a city and massacring the civilian population, men, women, children, babies, <laughs> animals of all kinds, everything, kill every living thing in the city. There are people who, and I've heard them say this, <coughs> They say, how can God be a God of love if he orders such a thing to happen? But such people do not understand the, the greater order of the universe. Human life is not valuable in the sense of, you know, of being of the greatest worth if it is not dedicated to God. It will be destroyed. And that person will spend eternity separated from God. It's a horrible thing. So to preserve Israel from the vileness of the Canaanite religion, its ritual prostitution and its human sacrifice, which would corrupt them, they had to be eliminated. As I've said several times before, the Canaanite religion had a strong appeal to the flesh. And when we be honest, if we're really honest, we have to think, because we, we, we just think of the vile aspects of it, but there were, I mean, it was very sensuous. And, and God knew that his people could be sucked into this, and later they would be. 
Look what happened to Solomon. He married all these foreign wives and went after their gods and Israel became soft towards the gods. And you read the story of the kings of Israel and it's an awful story. King after king, I mean not one single king of Israel did right in the sight of the God. Not one. There were 19 of them and they all, every one of them, the scripture says, did evil in the sight of God. And then when you go to the kings of Judah, only five of them did really right in the sight of God. A few more did sort of right in the sight of God. And some of them were absolutely vile too, like Manasseh. God knew what it would do to his people. So he said, it's got to be cut off at the root now, the very beginning. And so these soldiers had to destroy the population of the city. I don't think it was the nature of these men to enjoy the slaughter. I don't think they enjoyed it one little bit. I don't think they took any, any uh, sense of, of excitement from slaughtering people. <coughs> And I think to be realistic, we have to think that there were some who probably recoiled from it and didn't do it. There are probably some who said, I can't, I just can't do it. And then there were others who probably, when the whole thing were over, was over, were sick, literally sick, from having to massacre men, women, and children, as well as all the animals in the city. But you know, this was only the beginning. Because in the years, the seven years ahead, they were supposed to drive out the Canaanites. And they were to kill the Canaanites wherever the Canaanites resisted. If the Canaanites didn't flee, they killed them. And, and this happened over and over again. And the idea was that they were to purge the land of this vile people and their vile religion. And as we well know, you know, because our pastors already mentioned it, and you've certainly read through Joshua before, they are not very perfect about it. They do not eliminate all the Canaanites. They leave pockets of them here and there. And this will serve to pollute the land in, in days ahead. And the first pocket we'll be reading about very soon here. Many explanations have been offered as to what agency God used to drop the walls of Jericho. This is a very great issue with liberal scholars. Liberal scholars are particularly worried about this because they don't want to let God be God. Liberal scholars just don't like the idea of God doing things out of the ordinary, you know, miracles. You can't handle miracles because they just aren't normal things you run into. The walls fell because God said they'd fall, you know. Did he use an earthquake? Perhaps. He may have used an earthquake. But if he did, he had to use an earthquake that came at exactly the right moment and exactly the right intensity. You know, and it had to come from just the right directions and so that the wall wouldn't go this way or that way, but would just collapse straight down. John Rhea, in his commentary, says, whether an earthquake was used by God or not, it was a miracle of timing and of completeness. It's nice to think about it, and, and certainly it would be nice to know, wouldn't it? I mean, are, we have a certain intellectual curiosity. God, how did you do that? Well, wait. Wait for the great video in the sky. You know, when we get to heaven one day, we're going to say, God, run it by. <laughs> we'll start with the Garden of Eden, watch the whole thing. Oh, you know, I think it'd be wonderful. We'll have plenty of time. But the focus of it is not how God dropped the walls. That is not at all the focus of this whole story. The focus of this story, the point of this account is to declare who alone is God. That is the point of it. And I'd like to, this isn't, I don't have it written down there for you anywhere, but I'd like to read a 
a passage from 1 Samuel chapter 2. Because to me, this really highlights this whole point of who is God anyway here. Are the Canaanite gods anything? Apparently not. The whole wall collapsed. The army was destroyed. Israel slaughtered everything in the city. It was a dead city. So who are the Canaanite gods? Well, let's read the prayer of Hannah. When, you know, this is after Samuel is born and, and uh, she dedicates Samuel to the Lord. She says, My heart exalts in the Lord. My horn is exalted in the Lord. My mouth speaks boldly against my enemies because I rejoice in thy salvation. Verse 2, There is no one holy like the Lord. Indeed, there is no one besides thee, nor is there any rock like our God. Boast no more so very proudly. Do not let arrogance come out of your mouth, for the Lord is a God of knowledge, and with him actions are weighed. The bows of the mighty are shattered, but the feeble gird on strength. Those who were, those who were full hire full, hire themselves out for bread. Those who were hungry cease to hunger. Even the barren gives birth to seven, but she who has many children languishes. The Lord kills and makes alive. He brings down to Sheol and raises up. The Lord makes rich and poor. The Lord brings low. He also exalts. He raises the poor from the dust. He lifts the needy from the ash heap to make them sit with nobles and inherit a seat of honor. For the pillars of the earth are the Lord's. He set the world on them. He keeps the feet of his godly ones, but the wicked ones are silenced in darkness. For not by might shall a man prevail. Those who contend with the Lord will be shattered. Against them he will thunder in the heavens. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. He will give strength to his kings and will exalt the horn of his anointed. That's what the whole story of Jericho is about. It's about who is God. And Israel has to know who is God for them to conquer this land and to be the people God had called them to be, to occupy the holy land or the land of promise, and to be the seed of Abraham, and to declare to the world, as Isaiah says, to declare to the world who God is. It begins here with a mighty miracle that for which no one can take any credit but God himself. Earthquake or no earthquake, it was God who did it. Well, I'm out of time. Had a couple more things to say before we went to the next passage, but I'll do that next week.